We're in the Gospel of Mark. We're in chapter nine. If you'd open your Bible there to chapter nine of the Gospel of Mark, verses 30 through 32. We're studying the Gospel of Mark going through. We just happened to hit on Easter, a resurrection text. What? The topic we're gonna find there, Jesus' disciples are afraid to ask him how the Son of Man can suffer and be killed, and so the title of our message is, No Questions Asked. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, as I said earlier, we want to have ears to hear what the Spirit says to us as your church, and we're praying as Christians at the same time that he would be here drawing any non-believers to faith in Jesus Christ. And having said all that, Lord, we're gonna leave that work with you. There's nothing that we can do to enhance the grace of God as you are reaching into hearts. And so have your way, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Carl Sagan once said, there are naive questions, tedious questions, and ill-phrased questions, but there is no such thing as a dumb question. Well, he must not have seen the most recent list of the 30 dumbest questions ever asked online as reported by yahoo.com. Let me give you a sampling of five of them. Number one, should I tell my parents I'm adopted? (laughs) Number two, how big is the specific ocean? Number three, this is one of my favorites. If the NFL is only for the United States, how does New England have a team? (laughs) Number four, are chickens considered animals or birds? (laughs) And then this one, does it take 18 months for twins to be born? Now you know why sextuplets are such a big deal, but anyway. (laughs) Lawyers, lawyers have been known to ask dumb questions of witnesses. Here are three of them from actual court transcripts. Number one, how far apart were the vehicles at the time of the collision? (laughs) Number two, now doctor, isn't it true that when a person dies in his sleep, in most cases he just passes quietly away and doesn't know anything about it until the next morning? (laughs) And then there's this one. An accused man acting as his own counsel asked, did you get a good look at my face when I took your purse? (laughs) All right. Now, one way to not ask dumb questions is to not ask questions at all. It's a strategy we're gonna see in our text. The 12 disciples of Jesus Christ were walking with him on the outskirts of Galilee. He said to them, the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. The disciples did not understand what Jesus meant about his death, burial, and resurrection from the dead. Instead of asking him to clarify, they are described in our text as being afraid to ask Jesus any questions. What might they have asked? Well, two things come to mind. Number one, Jesus, why do you have to die? And number two, Jesus, when you're gone, how are we supposed to live? Those are great questions to ask and have answered on Easter 2016. 
And so I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, don't be afraid to ask Jesus why he died for you. And number two, don't be afraid to ask Jesus how to live for him. Let's take a look first of all at Jesus dying for us. See if you can recognize the book or the film being described in these one sentence summaries. A boy wizard begins training and must battle for his life with a dark lord who murdered his parents. That's a Harry Potter book, The Sorcerer's Stone. A young English woman from a peculiar family is pursued by an arrogant and wealthy young nobleman. Pride and Prejudice, of course. You watched that last night, I'm sure. It's a favorite. I think we, one time we watched the entire six-hour PBS one in a row all at once. I've never recovered. Uh, here's a, a better one. A Russian sub-captain leads the Soviet Navy on a merry chase while he tries to hand over the latest Soviet submarine to the Americans. The Hunt for Red October, one of the great submarine movies. Jesus' comment to his disciples is a one-sentence summary of the gospel. He spoke of his death. His burial is alluded to in that he would be in the tomb three days, and then he would rise from the dead. Death, burial, resurrection. The Apostle Paul makes certain that we know this trio of truths is the gospel in his letter to the church at Corinth when he says, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand. For I delivered to you, first of all, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, you can say more, you can say a lot more, but you can't say anything less or leave part of it all out and call it the gospel. And so let's see when and why Jesus gave his guys the gospel. Verse 30, now they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he didn't want anybody to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and after he is killed, he will rise the third day. Jesus wanted to keep a low profile in order to spend quality time with his disciples. Do we still use the expression, blow your mind? Is that something that is still out there? I think so. Does it blow your mind that Jesus Christ, who the Bible says is the creator of all things, he is God in human flesh, he actually wants to spend quality time with his disciples? Jesus purposely went on the outskirts and avoided the crowd so he could be alone with his disciples and talk to them personally. It gives kind of a better spin on devotion. A lot of times you think of devotions as something that you have to do or something that you want to get out of the way. Jesus is waiting to talk to us. He wants to talk to us. He wants us to get out of the way with him so that he can have a conversation with us. It's mind-blowing, really, when you stop and think about it. Now, class was in session as they walked, and Jesus had a very concise lesson. But before we get to his death and burial and resurrection from the dead, we can't overlook this title, the Son of Man. It's a very interesting title. It was chosen by Jesus very carefully. When we see what it means, we'll have a much greater understanding of the mindset and the subsequent confusion of the disciples. Now, it might help to recall that the Jewish scriptures, what we today call the Old Testament, they were not divided up into chapters and verses. All of that came much later in history. Jews recognized sections of scripture by key words or phrases. 
A teacher, like Jesus, would start with a word or a phrase alerting the students, in this case the 12, where he was referring them to in scripture. If I got up and said, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, you would know that I'm referring to the very first line of the Bible, Genesis 1.1, and you could turn there and we would be on the same page. If I said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You would probably recognize that as Psalm 22, the opening line of Psalm 22, quoted by Jesus on the cross. And that's how you would know where we are. I wouldn't get up this morning and say, open to Mark chapter nine, verse 30. I would just give uh, some key words and you would know where that is. Now, the Son of Man doesn't have quite the effect on us as it did Jews in the first century. You and I might not really even recognize where it's from initially. When the 12 heard the phrase, Son of Man, they would have thought of what we call Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Let me read them to you. I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the Ancient of Days and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. It shall not pass away. And his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. And so the Son of Man was a name for the coming Messiah who would reign as king over the kingdom of God on the earth. It would have captivated and excited the disciples to hear Jesus use this title of himself. In fact, they would have heard little else after he said this. If you're a parent or a grandparent, and especially if you have boys, you've seen the Pixar movie Cars 100 times. And that's okay, because it's a great movie. And by the way, if you don't cry every time at the end when lightning is pushing the king over the finish line, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> you might not have a human bone in your body. That gets me every time. Now there's a scene at the beginning when the king is trying to give lightning some sage advice, but as soon as he mentions the word dinoco, lightning checks out mentally and has a fantasy thinking of nothing besides being the next dinoco sports car, or spokes car, excuse me. And that's similar to what happened with the disciples. Once they heard the Son of Man, they checked out mentally. Their thoughts were all about the kingdom. It must be about to begin. Now, thinking about what I read in Daniel, the Son of Man coming to establish an everlasting kingdom, his dominion will never end, and then Jesus says, the Son of Man, talking of himself, this is it. They're, going, they're the generation that's alive to see the realization of the hopes of, of millions throughout history. I mean, this is big, the Son of Man. Now, it is accurate to speak of the spiritual kingdom in which God overrules history by his divine providence. But there's also the promise of a real brick-and-mortar kingdom of God on the earth. It's gonna be ruled by a king who will be seated on David's throne in Jerusalem, Israel. The current earth will be restored so that streams break out in the desert. Weapons of war will be turned into farming implements. Lions and lambs will frolic together. Righteousness will be the rule of the entire world. 
This kingdom was so ingrained in their national psyche that the Jews ignored other, more difficult portions of scripture, like the ones that spoke of the Messiah as a suffering servant. They couldn't reconcile the two pictures of the Messiah, and so when they read verses about the suffering of their Messiah, they applied it to themselves, and they said, well, they can't, the, the writer can't be talking about the Savior, he can't be talking about the Son of Man, it must be talking about us as a nation suffering, because we sure have. And so we want to cut these guys some slack. The idea that their Messiah would suffer and die was completely new to them. Regarding Jesus' comments on betrayal, the disciples would have wondered who on earth could betray the Son of Man and why would he want to? And regarding Jesus' comments on being killed, disciples would have wondered who could kill someone who was so glorious and whose dominion and kingdom are everlasting. I mean, almost, when you read Daniel 7, 13 and 14, it seems like the idea that he could be betrayed and killed is absolutely foreign. It makes absolutely no sense to them. They asked no questions. And so let me suggest the first question they ought to have asked, and that is, Jesus, why must you die? Now, how many answers do you think there are to that question? It's a rhetorical question. It might surprise you, but one contemporary theologian has identified at least 50 reasons why Jesus had to die. It'd be more accurate to say that his death on the cross accomplished at least 50 things uh, in the Bible. C.S. Lewis narrows the main reasons that we want to focus on in this quote. He said, we are told that Christ was killed for us, that his death has washed out our sins, and that by dying he disabled death itself. That is the formula. That is Christianity. That is what has to be believed. Any theories we build up as to how Christ's death did all this are, in my view, quite secondary. They are mere plans or diagrams to be left alone if they do not help us. And even if they do help us, they're not to be confused with the thing itself. In other words, Jesus had to die because that's the way God's universe is structured and works itself out to the glory of God and to the redeeming of creation. The physical universe has certain laws that govern it, like gravity, one of my favorite physical laws, by the way. I mean, you might have your favorite physical law, but gravity does it for me. Now, we could also say that there are laws that govern the spiritual universe. A few of those laws are all have sinned, and the wages of sin is death, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so... We would come along as, as thinkers and theologians and students of the word and say, well, why? Why are those things so? And people write books about it and arguments and they have theories and theologies about it. But Lewis would say, after all is said and done, it's the way it is. All have sinned. The wages of sin is death. There's no remission of sin unless there's blood. That is the fabric of the universe. That's, that is the gravity of the spiritual universe that God created. Man is a sinner. The punishment for death, or for sin rather, is death, followed by eternal conscious torment in hell. Now, God's solution for sin and death, and really the only possible solution to remit sin, is for God Himself to become a man in order to take our sins upon Himself and to take our place in death. 
So the minute a person says, I don't like the universe that God has created, if those are the laws, then they need to factor in, but he's also come and taken your place. Because that's the way the universe works, he can stand in for you and die for you and offer you eternal life. Because he was both God and man, his death could do both of the things C.S. Lewis mentioned, wash out our sins and disable death itself. What a tremendous message. My sins are gone and death has no hold on me. Now I wanna talk for a moment to anyone here who is not a believer in Jesus Christ. If you are a believer, don't check out. You can pray that the Holy Spirit would begin to work on hearts. We've said that Jesus' words are the gospel. In another place in the Bible, we read that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And one of the things that means is that when you are told about the death, burial, and resurrection from the dead of Jesus Christ, God empowers it to reveal to you that you are a sinner in need of salvation. The message itself has a power to affect the human heart by grace. When the gospel is presented, something spiritual occurs, something supernatural. Your blind eyes are opened and your bound will is freed in order that you might respond to the grace of God in offering you the forgiveness of your sins and eternal life. Even a lame presentation of the gospel gives the Holy Spirit opportunity to reach hearts. And that's why you are prompted, even commanded, to obey the gospel. It is a genuine offer for you to receive or reject. And so if you're not a Christian, if you're uh, you know, honest enough to admit today that you're not saved, you're not born again, you're not a Christian, you might not even know what you're doing here, uh, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, means that when you are in the vicinity of the gospel being preached, the Holy Spirit opens your blind eyes, frees your bound will, and encourages you to decide to receive Jesus Christ as your savior from sin and death. For me, all of this happened in early 1979 as I was watching a Christian film. God used it to penetrate my heart and to reveal to me that he was real, that he was alive, and that he was involved in human history. Now, I had a religious background but I never realized that because Jesus rose from the dead, he was alive. It may sound silly, but it was, a, it was big news to me. A day or so later, I experienced a terrifying moment in which I knew for the first time that I was a sinner by nature and to my very core, and that nothing I could ever do would be sufficient to cover my sins. I knew that if I were to die in that state, not only was hell my final destination, but I agreed with God that I deserved to be there. It was terrifying, it was worse than any horror movie. You know those jump scenes in horror movies where you're like, oh, something happens. It can be kind of a fun feeling. This was not a fun feeling. I knew that I was a hell-doomed sinner. I, all I can do is tell you that I knew it and that if I died, I was gonna go to hell and that I should go to hell, that I deserve to go to hell. And I, there wouldn't have been any argument for me at that moment. I knew I was a sinner in need of salvation. When I was told that Jesus died for me, I couldn't wait to accept that offer of eternal life. Don't be afraid to ask Jesus why he died for you. We're here today, we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, but if you're not a Christian, 
You need to ask Jesus, why did you die for me? Well, he died because you're a sinner who can't save him or herself, but he loves you so much he doesn't wanna leave you in that lost state. And so he came and he took your place in death because the wages of your sin are death. That's what you earn as a sinner, but he died for you that the gift of God can be eternal life. At the end of our service today, we're gonna invite folks to come forward for prayer. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, we'd love to have you come forward and pray with us to receive Jesus Christ as your savior so that you can tell a story one day about Easter 2016 when the Lord Jesus opened your eyes and unbound your will that you knew you were a sinner but that he had saved you because that's what it's all about. Second, we don't wanna be afraid to ask Jesus how to live for him. Verse 32, you Christians who've checked out can check back in now. Did the son of man establish the kingdom of God on earth in his first coming? He did not. Something happened to delay it. In the first eight chapters of Mark, Jesus had been going about preaching repentance, saying that the kingdom of God was at hand. He'd been performing miracles that were consistent with his claims to be the promised Messiah of the Jews. He had been routinely defeating the devil, casting out demons, sometimes by the thousands. Unfortunately, the rulers of Israel rejected Jesus as their Messiah. They sought ways to discredit him in the eyes of the people, and ultimately, they sought a way to kill him. Their response meant a change in his plans. The Lord would die, he'd rise from the dead after three days, and then after 40 days, he would ascend into heaven to await a second coming to the earth. The kingdom of God on earth was, that was promised to the nation of Israel would be postponed until that second coming. In the meantime, between his two comings, Jesus would commission his followers to go into the whole world making disciples of all men. They would do it and we do it still by preaching the simple gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection from the dead of Jesus. Now we're getting ahead of ourselves, or rather we're getting ahead of the 12 disciples. Their grasp of these things was still some days in the future. For now they were confused and troubled. It says in verse 32, but they did not understand this saying and they were afraid to ask him. Now this episode is found both uh, in Matthew and Luke's gospel as well. Luke is especially insightful. He writes this, he says, they did not understand this saying. It was hidden from them so that they did not perceive it and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. It was hidden from them, but not by God. That makes no sense. Why say they did not understand it if in fact they could not understand it? And so we have a tendency to read that and think, oh well, they didn't understand it because God hid it from their eyes and he would reveal it to them later, but that's not true. They didn't understand it because of their own expectations and preconceptions. Remember what we said about their understanding of the Son of Man and the kingdom of God. They expected the Son of Man to do what they read in Daniel chapter seven. They had no other expectation of what their Messiah would do except come and rule the world forever and ever. 
There was no room in their expectations for the man of sorrows that Isaiah described. Let me read this famous passage from Isaiah 53. He is despised and rejected by men. He is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed, speaking of salvation. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him and he has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed and shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now, we're at a great advantage as Christians who have the entire word of God. We know that Isaiah and Daniel were describing the same person. The son of man was the man of sorrows. Jesus Christ fulfills all of these scriptures in his coming. It was not in the thinking of the 12 or any Jew to see their Messiah as the son of man of sorrows. That beginning and end didn't make, made no sense that. How could the son of man be the man of sorrows? How could that be the same person? Well, we know because we have the complete message. After Jesus rose from the dead and especially after he ascended into heaven, the disciples would get it. The kingdom of God is postponed while the gospel goes out to the whole earth. These guys would get it like maybe no generation ever. And they probably had a leg up on us because they had been with Jesus. And once they got it, it was like, wow, let's go crazy with the gospel. Let's go everywhere with the gospel. Let's tell everybody about Jesus Christ. And so uh, they more than made up for what we see as their ignorance. But a lot of times, it wasn't that they were ignorant. They had expectations. You know, we have expectations too. One of the subplots here for us to note and uh, meditate on later is, is a question you'd ask of yourself. Lord, what expectations do I have of the Christian life or of Jesus Christ that hinder me from seeing you as you really are? in my life or doing as you desire in my life because all of us have biases, all of us have prejudices, all of us have expectations based on upbringing or church culture or just our American culture. I addressed non-believers a moment ago. Now it's time to continue to talk to believers. Is the gospel for us? To put it another way, is the gospel merely the message we preach to see folks converted or is it also a message in our daily lives? Well, I'll let the Bible answer that question. The Apostle Paul addressed believers and he told us how the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus impacts daily life. In Romans 6, 4, he said, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so he mentions our, being, uh, die, our dying and being buried and being raised with Jesus, we're to identify with Jesus in those things. And then he says, even so, or as a result of that, we also walk in newness of life. The death, burial, and resurrection from the dead of Jesus doesn't just convert sinners, it empowers and it enables saints we can right now walk in newness of life. What does that mean? 
Well, it means a lot of things. It certainly means that when we're born again and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we receive a life which we never possessed before. We begin to feel and to think and to act as we never did before. It's a life that's from outside of us that comes to us. We are born again, born spiritually. God the Holy Spirit takes up residence within us and we have God's nature. We're given a new nature. Our old sin nature is not eradicated. It lingers on in what we call the flesh, but we find within us the power to reckon ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God, and to therefore say no to sin and disobedience. And, and so we have, we have a new life, and we find that it's a powerful life. Now, everybody has a different testimony, of course, but many people have a testimony that when they came to know Jesus Christ for the first time, things that seemed to be impossible for them to accomplish one minute before were automatically, immediately, spiritually accomplished by being born again. Folks who struggled with lifelong addictions suddenly were cured and healed without even any withdrawal symptoms. Uh, I, my conversion wasn't quite that radical, but all of a sudden I had no desire anymore to do some of the wacky, weird things that I had fallen into. And it wasn't, it wasn't that I got saved and said, man, if I'm gonna go to church, I have to quit smoking pot and getting drunk all the time because that's not gonna go over too well. I know Christians are a kind of a snobby lot, so let me, let me go work on these problems. This is all of a sudden, I just didn't do those things anymore. I didn't even know why I didn't do them anymore. Well, now I do, because God had given me a new nature, and he had come to live inside of me. And, and so, it's a whole new life than the one that you were living before. Now, you find, after a little while, that you still have a propensity to sin, but you also find that you can say no to sin. We get in trouble later on in our Christian life where we start convincing ourselves that our flesh is just overwhelming us and, and that you know the devil made me do it. But uh, the, the truth about a Christian is that if you say you don't have any sin, you're a liar, but at the same time, you can always say no to sin because you have the Holy Spirit living within you. You have this new power. Charles Spurgeon has a powerful sermon on newness of life. In it, he describes our newness of life by cataloging our new hopes, our new motives, and our new possessions. Let's talk about a few of those just for a minute. We have new hopes. We're waiting for the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're looking for a new heaven and a new earth. We have a hope which defies death. What difference does that make? Well, if we're serious about our hope of the Lord's imminent return, it affects every thought and every decision that we make every day. I tell you, a person that can look death in the face and as Gino said this morning in our sunrise service, see death as a gift that's been given to us, uh, you know, what do you do to a person like that? You can't persecute a person like that. It doesn't really matter. With Paul the Apostle, we would say, well, I'd kind of like to stay here and you know, watch my grandchildren grow up and do a few things like that, but actually dying is better and you know, if they come to know the Lord, we'll be with each other in eternity, so whatever's gonna happen is gonna happen. I mean, if, you're start, if you really live out the Christian life, this newness of life, I mean, you're on top of things. You have a hope, uh, not, not just a wish that things would work out a certain way, but an absolute hope. Nothing can shake you. We have new motives you live now to please God. Once you live for what you could get for yourself, you live for the passing pleasures of a fleeting life. 
but now you have launched upon eternal pursuits. Eternity houses your treasures. Eternity excites your efforts. Eternity elevates your desires, puts everything into perspective. And we have new possessions. We have all spiritual blessings in abundance, so much so that if all of our material possessions were to fail us, we nevertheless can praise the Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, so much so that we can endure with joy and victory even the greatest suffering. We can draw from abundant grace, rich mercy, and peace that passes all human understanding. Now, don't get me wrong, we don't do this, all of us, all the time. We struggle, do we not? And, and if you're sitting there thinking, well, I, I must be a terrible Christian because right now I'm having these problems and, and, and I, I'm not walking in total victory. I understand that. I'm not either. But when you step back and you think, wait a minute, just wait a minute. The Holy Spirit lives inside me. What am I doing living under my circumstances when I'm seated in heavenly places where I should have a peace that passes all understanding, joy unspeakable and full of glory, and, and we struggle. It's still, it's always a struggle. Read some of the Psalms. I mean, the Psalmist has high highs and low lows, but in the end, he makes it work. And so these are, this is what it means to be a Christian. It means to live above your circumstances in a newness of life that is impossible to achieve apart from the supernatural encounter with Jesus Christ. Christian, are you daily hearing the gospel? That's the point. This is the gospel that's for us. This adjustment of our life to the way it really ought to be. This walking in newness of life rather than settling for the things of this world. DirecTV launched a series of hilarious commercials in which a family of frontier settlers is living in a neighborhood, but in a rustic one-room cabin without any modern conveniences. Have you seen that? Some of you are chuckling. And the father, they're, they're begging the dad to switch from cable TV to the more modern direct TV. And the father says to them in one of these, now mother, we're settlers. The boy has his stick and hoop. The girl has her faceless doll. You have your cabbages and I have my foot stomping. <laughs> and you think, man, what an idiot. Just get direct TV, you know, and, and you'll uh, be brought into the modern world kind of a thing. Christians, hear me, you can be a settler. The very fact that there are in the Bible exhortations to not forsake the assembling of yourself together, to not leave your first love, and to walk soberly show that we can settle for a life in this world that is far less spiritual than the one Jesus has mapped out for us. And I wonder, I wonder if we, sometimes if you could just lift the veil on how we actually look to heaven and what our house would look like, you know, and, and whether, whether I'm settling for just some foot stomping when I could have so much more in Jesus Christ. Now, I think especially in our great nation with its opportunity for wealth and our precious blood-bought freedoms, we can end up living our lives almost as we would have lived them without Jesus other than acknowledging that he has saved us and we occasionally attend church. We can become convinced that the phrase life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is a verse from the Sermon on the Mount 
and settle into the American dream. Now, a lot of you are not gonna hear what I'm gonna say next because I've mentioned the American dream and you think I'm a communist now. So let me just go back to my previous paragraph where I said, great nation, opportunity, blood-bought freedom. So I wanna live here, I don't wanna go to Mexico no matter who wins the election. And so I'm an American and I like California even. So, well, then I might be a communist, I guess, but no, that's not true. So I'm, I'm, I'm a patriotic guy. But I'm not criticizing, I'm making a comparison. Do you remember those pizza commercials that asked, what do you want on your tombstone? Remember those? It's funny because we routinely put summaries of our loved one's lives on their tombstone or what we would call their headstone. They're called epitaphs. You can usually choose from a list of the more common sayings like loving husband and father, those kinds of things. Which of the following two sayings would you rather be your epitaph? He dedicated himself to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, or he desired to come after Jesus by denying himself, taking up his cross, and following the Lord. Well, that's a trick question if you didn't understand. If you're still trying to figure out the answer to that, you've got real problems. (laughs) There's only one answer to that. One cancels out the other to a certain extent. Maybe you are exactly where God wants you to be. I don't know that I've ever been, but maybe you are. Maybe your plans for your life are in absolute harmony with God's plans for your life. Even so, you would certainly need to make minor course corrections from time to time. Uh, Everybody would admit that, that that we get a little bit of drift here and there and need to come back to the place where uh, God has us. And so today, as we close our service and our prayer time, if that describes you, and it may, you know, that, hey, I, I've, you know, I'm right where God wants me to be in, in most of my life, uh, but I want to be sure. Uh, so spend that time with the Lord and, and make sure that you're on his plan. For some of you, and maybe it's just one person here, today is the day you realize you have left God out of your plans, maybe for decades. It's possible. Again, I would appeal to the exhortations in Scripture. Christians, they forsake the assembling of themselves together. They leave their first love. They settle. The picture in the Bible is of like a orange juice with extra pulp. You know, maybe you like it to settle to the bottom and have you know, just clean orange juice until you get a giant mouthful of pulp at the end. But most people like to stir it up and, and drink it kind of all at once. And God oftentimes describes the human or the Christian life, both Old Testament and New, as a beverage like that whose pulp has settled to the bottom and needs to be stirred up, needs to be shaken. And so uh, that is something that happens to us as we've left God out of our plans. How open are you really to Jesus giving you a completely new direction? And when I say that, everybody's saying, well, <laughs> I am certainly not gonna talk to the Lord about that because he'll make me go to Africa. <laughs> I don't know where he'd make you go today, maybe probably the Middle East. But anyway, uh, everybody's worried and, and nervous about what the Lord would do if you really gave him control of your life. Do you understand that he bought you, that you belong to him, and now he's given you the freedom to choose whether or not you're gonna follow him and how you're gonna follow him? And the Bible says he will give you the desires of your heart. Uh, and, and, you know, I've told you before, it isn't more spiritual to go into full-time ministry 
But it's not spiritual at all to act like uh, you have no claim on your life. And, and I, I would think that any Christian, at some points in your life, several times in your life, you're gonna be faced with decisions where you're gonna have to suffer and sacrifice and go God's way. Uh, because uh, you know, a, a, a savior with scars demands saints that also have scars and obedience. How open are you really to Jesus giving you new direction? Pray about that. And then don't be afraid to ask Jesus how to live for him. Instead, remember this. If you're worried, if you're nervous, if you're concerned that the Lord's gonna do something weird to you, Paul the Apostle says, eye is not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. He has nothing but your best interest in mind. It may hurt sometimes getting there, but it'll be worth it. Let's pray together.